Wonderful. Thank you very, very much for that good and blessed ministry. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles together again this morning to the fifth chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians and the fifth chapter. I do want to remind us that tonight we observe the Lord's table together. And we also will give just a few moments before we do that and the message to attention to what we have read in the Pilgrim's Progress this week. And I trust that that will actually move us very easily right into what we will be considering. If you would like to prepare in terms of the Scripture passage that will be the basis for the message tonight. It will be out of First Thessalonians, excuse me, out of Hebrews and the fourth chapter, particularly the last verses concerning our coming to the throne of grace. This Lord's Day morning series has to do with attempting to learn how to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that is in response to the admonition that we're given in the 21st chapter of the book of Jude. Keep yourselves in the love of God. The passage that we have before us may seem at first glance to have nothing to do with that, but in fact it does, because we're told in Jude that one of the ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God is by waiting expectantly for the mercy that is to be ours at the coming of Jesus Christ. This passage concerns, verse 2, something called the day of the Lord. And last Lord's Day morning, we gave an introductory fashion an understanding of what that day is, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is a future era whose dominant feature is the judgment of God expressed in His wrath coming upon the inhabitants, the dwellers here in earth. Verse 3 refers to it as being time of destruction. Verse 9 refers to it as a time of wrath. Now, from comparison with other scriptures, particularly the Olivet Discourse, which we've already given some attention to, and then other passages of scripture that we have not looked at and will not in this series, but primarily from comparing with the book of Revelation. What we come to conclude is that the day of the Lord that is yet to come is the same thing as the tribulation period of seven years that the book of Revelation is so largely occupied with. And this passage is speaking of that And last Lord's Day morning, we noted that it is in four parts, and I want to call your attention to those again this morning, and then 
Lord willing, we're going to proceed right through them today. In the first five verses, we are given certain information that is not new to these readers. What Paul had said in the passage just previously, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that was new information. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Uninformed regarding those who are already asleep in Christ and whether or not they will be left behind when we go to be with the Lord and that they will join us only later, many years later. I don't want you to be uninformed, Paul says, about that matter. But when it comes to the day of the Lord, the apostle can say here, now the information that I'm sharing with you is what you already know. So what he's doing is just almost, you would say, in a hurried fashion, because what he has in these verses is something that's expanded at great length elsewhere. So it was right over the top of it, but he primarily does it in order to get to certain exhortations to the brethren. Those exhortations we saw are found in verses 6 through 8. And those exhortations are based upon what he says in verses 9 through 10. And that is this matter of destinations. There is one that we have not been appointed to. There is another that we are destined for. That being the case, those exhortations that we had in verses 6 through 8. And then finally in verse 11, you have two final exhortations to us. So information, exhortations, destinations, and final exhortations. So I want again this morning to address this subject of what we are appointed to. We are appointed, this passage says, in verse 9, not to wrath, but to obtain salvation. First of all, in verses 1 through 3 especially, we have certain information concerning the day of the Lord. This church of people included those who were converts from the synagogue in Thessalonica, so they were Jewish people. And they had a background in the Old Testament Scriptures. They were read every Sabbath day. And so the apostle can say to them that they know certain things when it comes to the day of the Lord. Why? Well, because there are so many passages in the Old Testament that deal with it. And we noted that last week, that there are 17 direct references to it in eight different prophets. Some of those references concern days of the Lord, eras of God's judgment and wrath that had already taken place by the first century. But some of those passages concern the day of the Lord as it is yet to come. Paul can say these Thessalonican believers are not ignorant about that. They know about there being seasons like that. But in addition, what the apostle does is go right down through what he, and I should say the Holy Spirit, 
wants all of the brethren to be reminded of about that, though they may know it well. And he's going to, in giving this information, in reviewing it, he's going to give two metaphors. The first of them you have in verse 2. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, and he uses a metaphor. In verse 3, he's going to use a second metaphor. And each of the metaphors tells us something that we know, but we need to be reminded of, just as the Thessalonians did. We need especially to be reminded of these things, so we will give heed to the exhortations. First metaphor, we know that the coming of the day of the Lord will be unexpected. That is the point of the illustration. It comes like a thief in the night. No one is expecting that. And right through the scripture when that metaphor is used, that is the point that is being made. The precise date of the opening of the day of the Lord is unknown to us. We know it will take place. But what the Spirit of God is saying to us is, though we know it will take place, it still will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. So I want to ask you a question. For those of us who know the Lord and have been taught scripturally, how can that be? It seems like there'd be no possibility that it would catch anybody, actually, especially us, but even the world, you would expect it wouldn't catch them off guard and unanticipated. And the reason that I'm saying that is because our Lord told us in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, He told us that before the end, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. You would expect that even people in the world facing those kinds of things would begin to give some attention to at least, in their minds, the remote possibility that what the Bible says in a book like Revelation, with all of those judgments falling on the earth, that that actually might be right around the corner. And yet the passage says here, it's going to catch people like a thief in the night, unexpectedly. How can that be? And the answer to that, in part, folks, must be what we've seen in the ninth chapter of Daniel. And that is the passage, as you know, where Daniel is told that there is a coming seven-year period of time that is determined for the nation Israel. And do keep that in mind. That in the first place, it's determined for the nation Israel. And what we're told in the 27th verse of that passage is that there will be a powerful political figure who will have the clout to be able to draw up and enforce a covenant with the nation Israel. 
And that will include, evidently, their being able to begin again, resume the offering of sacrifices in a rebuilt temple. Evidently, there is going to be a time when wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and so on, when there is just at least temporarily a hiatus. And there will descend upon the globe through the power of this figure, there will descend an element of stability and a sense that finally, finally, things have come to a rest, that there is peace. And if you look at verse 3, that's exactly what this says while they're saying peace and safety. Wars, rumors of wars, all of this trouble. But at some point, a brief lull, peace and safety. Then, unexpectedly, the coming of the day of the Lord. The other metaphor that is used here in verse 3 is that when that destruction comes, it will come like labor pains upon a woman about to deliver. Folks, what the word suddenly communicates, of course, is something that takes place without a kind of a period of transition. It doesn't take place gradually, one thing after another thing after another thing. Then it develops as sort of, you know, the expected end of what has been taking place. No, they're not going to be anticipating the destruction is going to be the end of their having now finally come to peace and rest in the earth. This is going to come suddenly upon them. The metaphor that is used here, of course, is one that any mother who has given birth understands. That's something that those of us who are men will never understand. I had to try to think of something else that really brought that vividly to my imagination. And the thing that, that I could most identify with was an automobile accident. And I've been in numbers of those, probably six or eight of them, which, by the way, only one of them was my fault. <laughs> and that was just a little, little bit of a fender bender. I backed out of a parking space in a parking lot and of all things, bumped into an older couple. I just was mortified. But the worst of those car accidents is one that I think I can draw on at this point, and it occurred in the fall of 1988, uh, just a year before Pastor Boyd uh, appointed me to be the senior pastor of the church here. And Dr. Steve Hankins, many of you would know him, and I had gone up to Gaffney to watch a high school football game on a Friday night. And we were coming back, and I guess we were coming back back roads, and we're running down the highway, and all of a sudden I become aware in the dark of headlights that are approaching from the left. And then as we came to what evidently was going to be an intersection. It's dark, and so you're all, you know, you're not seeing all of this, but 
I, I realized that that car wasn't stopping. And I said right out loud to Steve, they're not stopping. And it was right about then that we were in the intersection. And I pulled the wheel to the right and we hit that car right over their rear right wheel. And that car spun. Our The, the front hood of my car just folded up like an accordion. And when it was all over, we got out. It was just amazing. There was a girl who was there from, I believe it was Charlotte. She didn't live in the area. She was there visiting some cousins. She was taking her cousins. They were trying to make a run real quickly. I think it was to a McDonald's or something before it closed. She didn't know there was a stop sign there. Wasn't familiar with the, with, with, uh, the area. And she, she hadn't slowed at all. And she had, I think, four small children in the car with her. It was just really a valor that no one was seriously injured. But my point is, it happened so fast. Even though I could see those lights approaching from the time I became aware of those lights until it happened, it was just like a blink. That's what this is describing. Folks, keep those two things in mind when you think about the coming of the tribulation period. Even as troubled as our world is today, and the more troubled it will become, and everyone's tendency to think, perhaps, that these are just the forewarnings of something terrible right around the corner, The Lord says in the Olivet Discourse, these are just the beginning of birth pangs. The end is not yet. And now we find out that there's actually going to be ushered in a temporary period when everybody's going to say, finally, peace and safety. And then, this is the point, without warning... unexpectedly, suddenly, like a car accident, like labor pains, the destruction falls. And the third point that is made here about all of this is that it's inescapable. The end of verse 3, they will not escape that. It's just all remarkable. Just as you had it, for instance, in the days of Noah. The scripture is so clear there. It says in the very day, God emphasizes that, on the very day that Noah and his family and all of the beasts to be preserved entered into the ark and the door was shut, then the scripture's description is that the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of heaven, the windows of heaven, it says, opened, and destruction. The same thing that you had in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family escape, led by the angels, fire and brimstone. Suddenly, they do not escape. That's what's being described here. Now, I want to suggest the possibility that you would put a cross-reference right at the conclusion of verse 3, and then we're going to look at it. And that is a cross-reference in the book of Revelation. And I want to show you in the book of Revelation what in my estimation is the point in that book that marks this beginning. 
And what you have is in Revelation chapter 6, and it's verses 3 to 4. If you don't put it in the margin of your Bible, at least make note of that somewhere. After we look at it, then you may want to put it in the margin of your Bible. But let's turn to that, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6 records the Lamb of God beginning to break the seals on a great scroll. And what you read of then, beginning in chapter 6, is that every time he breaks one of those seals, something happens on earth. When he breaks the first of those seals, verse 1, verse 2, something happens. When he breaks the second of those seals, verses 3 and 4, this is what happens. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. And another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth. Obviously communicating that to this point there had been peace. But it is granted to this particular horse and rider to take peace from the earth and that men would slay one another. A great sword was given to this rider. Now folks, evidently then, what you have in verse 2, where when the first seal is broken and what John sees is a white horse and a rider on it with a bow, which is, of course, an implement of war. And a crown is given to him, so he reigns. And he went on conquering and to conquer. When we went through the book of Revelation, my own suggestion was that the person who is best figured here is the coming man of sin that prince who will make that covenant. And he obviously will have the power to do it, and he will reign, and he will conquer. But the result of his having done so is going to be a period of peace. Because the next rider takes peace from the earth. So the consequence of what the first rider does in his conquering is to usher in a period of peace. Second rider takes the peace from the earth, and his doing so is not just regional, it's global. What he does, look at it, verse 4, is take it from the earth. So that everywhere... There is this loss of life. Men are moved to slaughter one another. That may be, of course, why he is colored red in keeping with his powers of bringing blood and universal killing. That, in my estimation, is the beginning of the day of the Lord and the wrath of God. And, of course, as the scrolls continue to be unrolled, when you come to the breaking of the sixth seal. If you look at verse 16, the people on the earth finally recognize this and say, the wrath of the Lamb has come. It's the day of His wrath. 
That's the opening of the day of the Lord. Now, if you go back, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What we've seen to this point, then, is this. That there is coming a day that is going to be unparalleled. Well, I shouldn't say unparalleled. It is going to be unequaled. It is going to be unique in its display of God's wrath and His judgment upon all the earth. There have been previous days of the Lord. They are precursors. They're previews, as it were. But this day, the Bible teaches, is unlike anything that has come before, and there will never be anything again like it. It is going to come unexpectedly, suddenly, and people will not escape the wrath of God in it. Now the Thessalonians, Paul says, knew those facts. None of that is new. The Old Testament prophets speak of it just that way. In the Olivet Discourse, the Lord gave an extended discussion to at least the second half of that, the second half of those seven years. So this is not new information. But having reminded the Thessalonians of that, and we've reminded ourselves of it this morning, now we really are prepared for the exhortations that come in verses 4 through 8. Let's read the entirety of those verses. You, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now you can see, you could pick them out for yourself, but we'll go through the sequence of them in just a moment, that that little section contains exhortations, admonitions to people, to brethren, to Christians like ourselves, exhortations in light of the fact that we fully know that there's a day coming like this and it will come on a day just like today in the sense it'll be unexpected, it'll catch the world suddenly. Now would you notice please, first of all regarding those exhortations, that they are due to the difference between us and the world. That's the point of verses 4 through 5. There's a great difference. In fact, two of them primarily that he's going to emphasize here between us and the people all around us in a community like ours today. The first of those differences is in this matter that he already spoke of. It's in our knowledge. That's what's being referred to in verse 4. 
you're not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. It'll overtake them like a thief unexpectedly because they don't have any knowledge that it's coming. But we're not in darkness. We actually have the knowledge about that. But the bigger point that you have here is the one that you have in verse 5. The difference between us and the world isn't just a matter of what's in our heads. Because we've read the Bible and we have knowledge. Folks, the really great difference is in our nature. And we have seen this recently in our evening series on the fact that we are not of the world. What the next verse is talking about isn't just our knowledge. Look at the language of it. You are sons of light. It isn't just that you have light. You're enlightened. That's what verse 4 was reflecting. You're not in darkness. You're enlightened. That day's not going to overtake you as a thief. You know it's coming. But verse 5, by very nature, you are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. And that is the same thing as we've seen that the apostle refers to when he writes to the Ephesians. And he talks to them about the kind of lifestyle that a Christian ought to have. That a Christian ought not be living a certain way. And his argument for it at the end is this, that you now are children of light. You are children of the day. He's talking about your nature. You are light. You are no longer darkness. And that's his same point here. And what you have scripturally is just simply this teaching that God himself is light. And his children partake of that nature by virtue of the new birth. And the fact that now they possess the very life of God referred to in scripture as eternal life. And we have seen this many times that eternal life is not just life that endures forever. It isn't just life of a certain duration. It's life of a certain nature. It's the life of God. He is deathless. You become a Christian and are born from God and now you are deathless. You have God's life in you. And that life is light. And because there is this tremendous difference between us, then if you'll think for a moment of that parable that we looked at in Matthew 25 several Lord's Days ago, where the Lord warns about the difference between wise virgins and foolish virgins. The difference between them was whether or not they possessed oil. 
and all the wise virgins possessed oil. And therefore all the wise virgins were ready when the call came, the bridegroom's coming. If you're a Christian, you are light. You possess the nature of God. And you are ready in that respect. And you will not be left behind. You are not a person without oil. You have everything necessary for full salvation. Now, the point here, verses 4 and 5, is that the exhortations that are going to be given to us now in verses 6 through 8 are based on that difference. It isn't just a difference in knowledge, though we do have knowledge that the people outside don't have. It's due to the fact that by our very nature, we're different than the people outside. And that being the case, now look at the sequence of exhortations that you have in verses 6 through 8. The very first of them is simply this, so let's not sleep the way the others do. And what it's talking about here, obviously, is closing your eyes and resting in drowsiness. The drowsiness that will be the world's is that false sense of security that they will have. It'll be as if they're sound asleep when it comes to actually the realities, the invisible realities that are just about to come upon them. No, because we're of totally different nature, we ought to be awake. Now, I want to suggest again a cross-reference for you. If we are of a completely different nature, why would he even bother to say, be sure you're awake? And there's a cross-reference that will give the answer to that. It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. We won't look at it. I can just tell you about it. It's when our Lord sends his letter to the church at Sardis, and he can say of those people, some of them in that church, that they need to wake up. So folks, it evidently is possible to be in a church like our church, to have knowledge like we have, to even be a Christian, so that the Lord addresses you as His own. But actually you've gone into the same slumbering, false sense of security that the world around you has despite the knowledge that you have. And despite the difference in your nature. The Lord says, no, don't be asleep the way these other people are like that. But, second admonition, be alert. Third admonition, be sober. What does that word mean? You'll get an idea of that if you look at the next verse. Those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get what? Drunk. The word sober has reference to being self-controlled. In this passage then, in the next verse, it goes on and speaks of intoxication. And I just asked you, what does it mean to be sober? And essentially, what this is talking about then, folks, is not being intoxicated. These things that this passage and the Word of God foretells are for real. And toward the end of the message last Lord's Day morning, I just overvoted for you 
many of the events of 2023 and the horrendous pictures that we saw of collapsed buildings and of floods and bodies in streets and children crying in the hallways of hospitals and people being carried on litters and buried in mass graves and all the terrible things that have come upon regions of the world because of earthquakes and famines and wars and diseases. Regions of the world collapsed in tragedy. Someday there is coming unexpectedly, suddenly, global conditions like that. Everywhere that will be the picture. That isn't going to come upon us suddenly and unexpectedly because we know and our nature is different. But don't act like the people of the world about these matters. Be alert and don't get intoxicated with anything. That's what characterizes people when they're in the dark. Those who sleep do it in the dark. Those who get drunk in the dark. Don't do that. And all you have to do is look around in our culture for all of the ways that people are intoxicated and you will know what to be careful about. I had the opportunity of teaching a one-hour Bible class this last week. It's freshman students at the university. And I had just read the day before the cost of a Super Bowl ticket. I thought it was something these kids could relate to. Do you know what they say the average cost of a Super Bowl ticket is this year? The average is over, I'm sorry, what the lowest cost is. The lowest seat in the house is over $8,000. The lowest seat, the average is over $9,000. Is that intoxication or what? Folks, that's just one illustration of the, the madness in the world. What a wonderful thing it is that God has given to us the Scriptures and that we have light and we're children of light and we're admonished then to go into the world and be light to those people who are dwellers in darkness. The other admonition that is given toward the end here is particularly blessed for us when it tells us that we are to be clad in Christian armor. And would you notice these virtues? Faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Do you recognize that trio? That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. It it names those three and says that those remain, they endure. Faith and love and hope. And as Christian people who really truly are awaiting the future with tremendous expectation anxiously awaiting the mercy that is to be shown to us at the coming of the Lord. The whole center of our being, the whole core, folks, protected by faith and love. 
in this world. Faith in God, faith in the Scripture, love for God, love even for the people of the world. And on our heads, a helmet, what part of the head are we primarily concerned to protect with a helmet? It isn't the surface, it's the what? It's our brain. And what this passage says is that the helmet that literally protects your thinking is your hope. Which is confident expectation. It's not wishful thinking. We've seen that again scripturally. Folks, scripturally, hope is not like you say, well, you know, I hope I get a job this summer. You're wishing you will. Biblical hope isn't like that. Biblical hope is certain, it's just you don't have it yet, and that's why you refer to it as your hope. To protect your mind, you need to have on your head your confident expectation of what? Of what? Of what? Salvation. Assurance of salvation. To be ready, alert, unintoxicated, prepared for what the whole world will not be expecting. Let the whole core of your being be protected by your faith in God and your love. And when it comes to all the anxious things that afflict your thoughts, especially from time to time, perhaps the torture, torment of wondering, am I really saved or am I not? Am I going to be left behind? No, 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 no. Have you believed on Christ? These things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You have the life of God, your light. Now let that protect your mind in these last days. Your assurance of salvation. What wonderful exhortations. Now folks, that is the same language. That whole passage, the unexpected nature of that coming like a thief, the exhortations to be alert and awake and watchful because you don't know the time. It'll be unexpected. That is exactly the same language that is used in Matthew 24. And I want to ask you to turn back there with me, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 24. And I want to bring these passages together because these passages bring two events together. Matthew 24. I'm going to start reading with the 42nd verse. Actually, we probably better begin a little earlier. Verse 37. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. 
For as in those days before the flood came, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand. They were in the dark. They didn't understand until it came. It was only the coming of the destruction that finally caused them to know. And it took them all away. They didn't escape it. That's the way it's going to be with the coming of the Son of Man. There are going to be two men in the field. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left for that destruction. Just like the people in Noah's day were left for it, and Noah and his family were taken. Or I could use this illustration that the Lord uses in Luke that we looked at in this series. Just like Lot and his family were taken out of the city, and the rest were left for destruction. That's what's going to happen in this coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 41 Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Therefore be on the alert. Be on the alert, just like 1 Thessalonians 5 says, because you don't know the time of the coming of the day of the Lord. Is that what that says? Yes or no? Look at verse 42 again. Everybody seems baffled. Be on the alert. You don't know the beginning of the coming of the day of the Lord. Is that what that verse says? No, it says this. You don't know which day your Lord is coming. Be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have been allowed his house to be broken unto. For this reason you also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't think he will. Unexpectedly. Now folks, would you please notice that what is said about the coming of our Lord is the same thing being said about the coming of the day of the Lord. What is going to happen at the coming of the day of the Lord? destruction. What is going to happen at the coming of the Lord? Some will be taken when others are left. Just like Noah and his family were taken and the others were left. And in both cases, the admonition, whether you look at the one event or the other, the admonition to people like us is, you need to be alert and ready. Because they're both going to happen unexpectedly and suddenly. Folks, what is the way in which they both are going to happen suddenly and unexpectedly? and some taken, and some left. And those left will only understand when the judgment falls. It is obviously that those two events happen in very close proximity to each other. That the coming of the Lord for His people is like the angels taking Lot and his family out of Sodom. 
It's like the Lord shutting Noah and his family in the door, into the ark. And that very day, the fountains of the great deep burst open. It's that those two events happen in very close proximity to one another. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. That being the case, notice then what we're told about the Lord's appointment for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'll start again at the end of verse 8. Final exhortation. Put on as a helmet to protect your head, your confident expectation of salvation because. Because God has not destined us for wrath. What you have in verses 9 and 10 are these destinations. And what we're told here is God's appointment for us. What He has destined us to when that day comes. When it is destruction, unexpectedly, suddenly, inescapably. When it is wrath. God has not destined us for wrath. God has destined us to obtain salvation. God's wrath is manifested at various times in history. The whole tribulation period will be a manifestation of God's wrath. Unprecedented in the history of the world. And never again equaled in the history of the world to come. There will also be, of course, the terrible wrath of God into which people will be cast, a lake of fire of it, after the great white throne judgment. A wrath that people will never escape for all eternity. But there is coming a seven-year period of wrath that this passage is talking about. As you look ahead to that, and hopefully are alert and awake and ready, don't be anxious. Don't be filled with fear. Don't wonder to yourself, am I going to be caught in that? What's going to happen to my family? Don't be filled with anxious fear. No, no. God has appointed you to obtain salvation. You've not been destined to wrath. That's what this passage is talking about. What's going to occur is what chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 told us. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. The dead in Christ will return with him. Their bodies will rise. We will be caught up together with them. We will always be with the Lord in the air. And brethren, when it comes to this other matter, the day of the Lord, you're not in ignorance. You know the way it's going to be coming. If you really have accepted that knowledge and believe it, then be ready and alert. But don't be filled with alarm. You don't need to go into one of these modes of being a hoarder of things and 
be a doomsdayer protector of all that you can. I'm, I'm not arguing against using, you know, normal prudence when it comes to looking ahead to the future and being sure that as best you can, your affairs are taken care of. But you're no doomsday prepper. Scanning the internet and every possible resource for every bad thing that's going to happen and digging holes in the ground so that when the judgment of God falls, you and your family have a bomb-proof shelter in the backyard. Put on your head your confident expectation of salvation. You're not appointed to wrath. You're appointed to obtain salvation. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I want to give you a cross-reference. Right near the words, through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at this one, I'd put Revelation 3, verses 10 through 11. And then I want to ask you to turn there. Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. This is our Lord's wonderful message to the church at Philadelphia. And I just want to remind you that all seven of these messages are messages that the Spirit of God says all of us are to hear and all of us are to give heed to. So this was not unique to that one little church in Asia Minor in the first century. Verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, pause. That's going to be true of every Christian. Every Christian. Hebrews says you're saved if you keep the beginning of your faith steadfast to the end. You've got to persevere. And because you're a child of God, you absolutely will persevere because you're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Listen to that again. You're kept by the power of God. You're going to persevere. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing or great temptation or trouble that hour which is about to come upon the whole world there's not been that yet folks that wasn't the first century that is still to come there's never been anything like that on the whole world the hour is coming upon the whole world to twist those who dwell on the earth and the Lord's promise is, I'm going to keep you not just from the trouble, but from the very time of it, from the hour of it. I'll keep you from that hour of testing when it comes on the whole world. Lord, how are you going to do that? How are we going to obtain salvation rather than being here to experience something of the wrath? Next verse. Next verse. I'm coming quickly. It's the same thing 1 Thessalonians 5 is assuring us of. You're going to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many, many of our dear brethren 
whom we highly respect and love in the Lord, but they are expecting to go into the tribulation. And one of their arguments for that is, well, why should we be saved from suffering when so many Christians all through history have suffered? What you have to remember, folks, is actually very few Christians have been martyred for Christ's sake. Very few Christians, compared to the whole number of Christians, very few, a small percentage, have been imprisoned or had all their goods confiscated or their homes burnt or their children taken away. The vast majority of Christians in church history have not suffered in those ways. Those who do are appointed by God to suffer like that for Christ's sake. All Christians suffer. Paul says that in 1 Timothy. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution to some extent. That's true of you to some extent. But you may not be appointed to give your life for Christ or lose all of your possessions because you're a Christian. And when the day of the Lord begins, it is not God's appointment that his people go into that time of testing and experience any of, you could say, the collateral damage of his wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 are as clear and explicit on that point as you could want any scripture to be. And I want at the conclusion of this message to take you back to verse 11 and to the exhortations that are given to us there as believers. You probably are aware that there are many, many Christians today who are deeply disturbed in their spirits and it's not just over the proliferation of evil in the earth. It's not a Psalm 119 kind of sorrow. David will talk there about his eyes running tears because of the lawlessness and the godlessness of lost people around him. The kind of sorrow and sadness and anxiety I'm talking about this morning that characterizes many Christians is not just because things have gotten really sinful and wicked in the world. They are worried about what they're going to experience And some of their worry is in keeping with their understanding that the church of Jesus Christ is going to go into the tribulation. And that much of it is going to suffer martyrdom, is going to be beheaded, is going to be faced with the issue of whether or not to take the mark of the beast. You're not going to be faced with the issue of whether or not to take the mark of the beast. You're not going to be here. You've not been appointed to that period of time. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to remove his bride before his wrath falls on this earth. He's going to remove his bride. He's going to catch his bride away. And that being the case, look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another about this like I'm doing this morning. What I'm doing is totally biblical. 
When it says encourage one another, it's not just talking about encourage your people generally, encourage your people that they're not going to go to hell, but they're going to go to heaven. It's talking about encourage them about this matter that the first 10 verses have been talking about. And dear people, don't let any mistaken eschatology rob you of your peace and comfort about the coming tribulation. Don't do that. Take it as the will of God that when you think about that period of time that is far worse actually than anything you can even imagine it being. But when you think about that, don't be gripped with anxiety. Put on your head your confident expectation that you were not appointed for that. You were appointed to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that whether you sleep in the earth, and some of us in this year will be buried in the earth. Whether you sleep in the earth when it comes, or whether you're the generation alive when it comes, that's what this passage says. You're going to be together with the Lord. I want to ask you how it is that when the day of the Lord comes and you're not asleep in the earth, you're alive, how is it you're going to be with the Lord? Can you answer that question? Look at what it says, verse 10, whether we're awake or asleep, the day's coming, it's going to catch everybody unexpectedly, suddenly, terrible destruction, wrath of God, and whether you're awake or asleep when that happens, you're going to be with the Lord. How's that going to happen? You're not going to be here. You're going to be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. Would you please be encouraged this morning? And folks, in the future, when you talk about eschatological matters, would you please build one another up about this and not tear down one another's hope? I have dear brethren, I do mean dear, and I have had to say to them on occasion, why are you so insistent about going through the tribulation? It's like you want to do it. I don't understand that. Build up the brethren and encourage them with this passage. And with what Revelation 3, verses 10 through 11 says. And folks, truly, if we would accept these things and really be looking for the Lord's coming at any time, just like he said, and realizing that the day of the Lord's going to come the same way, just like this passage says. But when those events occur, the church is going to be caught away. Just think how it would change your disposition. <laughs> think of how released your spirit would be. But if you toy and tamper eschatologically and start to interpret things figuratively instead of literally, you're going to confuse yourself. And you're going to be waiting for the Antichrist instead of Christ.
Are you waiting for the Antichrist? Or are you waiting for Christ? Brethren, encourage one another with these things. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful word and for the clarity of it. And we thank you that these dear brethren, the Thessalonians, sleep in the earth, their bodies resting in union with Christ. And we praise you that that is true of all of our own brothers and sisters that we've lost out of our assembly here over the years. Thank you that they are with you. And thank you that their bodies will be raised and that we almost simultaneously will find ourselves completely transformed in body. And all of us caught up with your Son in the air. And oh Lord, thank you. You wouldn't have had to tell us. You would not have had to assure us. You could have left us waiting on tiptoe and anxious about this terrible period of wrath. Lord, we thank you that we can expect it and be alert to it without any fear, without any trouble or anxiety, with complete armoring of faith and love and confident expectation. Help us, Lord, to take these words this morning and find our solace in them. And we ask in Christ Jesus' precious name for his glory. Amen. 160 in our hymn book. Lamb of God, thou now art seated high upon thy Father's throne. And then the third stanza, thou soon in glory will to this sad earth return. I'm not sure whether the writer of this hymn was a, I'm not sure of what he was eschatologically, all right? But as I've gone through the wording, there is nothing here that I, as a firmly convinced pre tribulational premillennialist. That means I believe there will be a tribulation, but that Jesus comes before it, pre-tribulation. I believe that after the tribulation there will be a millennium. I'm not an amillennialist. I am a convinced, fervent millennialist. I'm looking forward with all my heart to the millennium. I've said to some of you that we never get to fellowship. I say that's what the millennium's for. We're going to get like 20 years together in the millennium. Little joking, okay, but I'm, I'm a firmly convinced millennialist and a premillennialist. I believe that Jesus is coming before the tribulation to catch his bride away. I believe at the end of the tribulation he's coming back and we will come with him just like Revelation 19 describes. You're going to ride a horse. Read Revelation 19. You don't like horses. You're going to like them then. You're going to ride a horse. Christ himself is going to be on a horse. I believe that he's coming back to finally take earthly possession. And for 10 centuries, 
everybody who's born during that time, they'll all be born lost, they'll all be born with a fallen nature, but they're all going to see what this earth can be like when the right person rules. And when the right rules are enforced. Now what do you have on earth? You're going to have a little paradise. And I believe that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ just like he said. I am a pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist. And there's really nothing in this song that I can't make fit that. Okay? So I want you to be at ease as you sing the song. I think you'll see that the language is general enough that it'll fit. Let's stand together and sing.